Let me tell you, I'm so happy that we got the PowerPoint working again. For a minute there, I thought we were going to have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. No, look, I mean, I say that, and look, I'm no dummy. I appreciate, and and I want us to use, I want us to exploit technology. So here I am speaking with a microphone. We've got cameras because we record this so that people can watch it on video. And there are people all over the world who watch the services here on video. Uh, we, We live stream them. We put them out on MP3. We use this. We've got lighting. We've got all that. But I tell you, there's something just kind of weird in my heart that thinks sometimes I was just born too late and that sometimes I belong in an age where we didn't have any of this and was just a man without any microphone screaming his lungs out the great gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think about that kind of in the strangeness of my head. You you know how they'll have sometimes a tennis tournament where they'll give the tennis players rackets from the 60s and 70s and make them play with that I say you know let's have a preach off with those kind of rules (laughs) forget the microphones forget the powerpoint the lights all the rest but just just get at it but no we're happy that we have those technological things but we want to never ever put our trust in them we want to always rely on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit because that's what changes lives that's what changes lives Father in heaven, we pray now that as we come and approach your word, that you give us the wisdom, you give us the anointing from your Holy Spirit. Because Lord, even though we're thankful for the technology that we have and we want to exploit it to the fullest potential possible, Lord, we never want to put our trust in it. Our trust is in you and in the moving and the operation of your spirit. So we pray now that you would descend upon us and help us to understand and, and um, be impacted in our life by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, with that, would you please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 6. You know, uh, this is the last Sunday of the year. I-, I always feel like it's sort of a special Sunday. You know, here we are gathered together. Maybe a lot of people are out of town on a Sunday like this, a little more of a family feeling being here together. Uh, But we get together and and you think, well, maybe I should do a year-end message. Maybe I should do something special like that. You know what, to me, I I just find it special plowing through the sections that God has given us to study together. So I got to say, I'm very excited to go through this particular section, John chapter 6, as we continue on in our study through the Gospel of John. We're going to begin at verse 1. Let's read this. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. What we have in the beginning part of John chapter 6 is something unique in the scriptures. We have a miracle other than the resurrection of Jesus. We have a miracle that's mentioned and described in all four Gospels. Friends, other than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the only miracle that's described in all four Gospels. There was something important about this particular miracle. And you're going to recognize it, I think, if you've been around the Bible or if you've been around the the Christian life in any length of time. This is the feeding of the 5,000. And it begins in Galilee, which is a little bit unusual for the Gospel of John. 
The Gospel of John centers its action all around Jerusalem and Judea. Only on rare occasions, and there's a few of them, does John go up to the region of Galilee to describe what Jesus did there. And this is one of them. So here he has Jesus in the region of Galilee. And if you'll notice, a great multitude, verse 2, followed him. The great multitude followed him because they saw the amazing things that Jesus did as he healed many people. There was a remarkable demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just told you that this particular miracle is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each individual Gospel gives a little different insight into what happened here. For example, John doesn't tell us this, but Mark and Luke do, that not only did Jesus practice healing among this great crowd, but he also taught them. And he was teaching them all day long when it transitioned into what we're going to see in verse 5. But one more thing before we go into verse 5. It says that they went up on a high mountain. Friends, actually in the literal ancient language, it just ends up into a higher place. Where they are, if you know anything about the geography of Israel, is they are on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee on the high plateau that raises up on that side of the Sea of Galilee, which is commonly called the Golan Heights. They're up in that area. So don't think a mountain like the Sierra Nevada mountains. Think of a high elevated plain, something like our Mesa here in Santa Barbara. Okay, that's where they are gathered together. Ready for the next part? Take a look at verse 5. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But he said this to test them, test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So here the great multitude comes. And as the other gospels tell us, Jesus had been teaching them all day. And Jesus, with compassion for the multitude, knowing that they had walked a long distance to come and hear him and given their whole day to either see the signs which he had performed or to hear the teaching which came out of his mouth. He said, these people are hungry. We're not near any big city where they can find food. Most of them apparently didn't bring food with them. What are we going to do to feed them? And so he chose one of his disciples to ask. He chose Philip. And of course, Bible commentators love to ask themselves the question, why did he choose Philip? Why didn't he ask this question to Peter, to James, to John, to Nathaniel, to any of the other ones? Why did he choose Philip? Well, there's a few different options that come up in people's mind. Some people think that he chose this question to ask of Philip because Philip was sort of like the uh, logistical coordinator for the disciples. You know, we know that Judas was the treasurer. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus allowed Judas to be the treasurer. So Judas was the treasurer, but there had to be somebody sort of in charge of procuring what they were going to get to kind of feed the disciples. Listen, walking around feeding 13 people and taking care of their needs every day, that, that takes some organization. And maybe Philip was just kind of in charge of that. That's a possibility. There's another possibility that's also very engaging. This takes place near Bethsaida. That's what we find out. Near Bethsaida in the region of Galilee. Philip was from Bethsaida in the region of Galilee. Maybe Jesus asked Philip because he said, look, you're from around here. You know the area as well as anybody else. What's going on? Where can we get food to feed these particular people? But I want you to notice especially what it says in verse 6. It says there, 
He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. In other words, friends, he did not need Philip's help at all. He didn't have to ask Philip this question in order to get the job done. In other words, it wasn't like Jesus saying, man, I got a problem. I have no idea what to do. Philip, can you help me out with this? No, this was purely for the education and the instruction of Philip and the other disciples as well. Friends, there's something so big for us to grab on into that. That God is interested in training and teaching his people. Not merely in getting a job done. This is very important to God. When God works, when God moves among his people, so much of it is that he can teach and train us along the way, not merely to get a job done. Friends, if God was only interested in getting the job done of preaching the gospel to the world, don't you think he would dispatch a bunch of angels to go out with a bunch of megaphones and cry it out all over the world? Wouldn't that be much more efficient? Hey, if you're only concerned about getting the job done, then that's how you do it. But God is not only concerned about getting the job done. He's also concerned about developing the character and the discipleship of his people along the way. And that's why he asked Philip this particular question. I think this is something that God wants us to be concerned about. And in the particular ministry that I try to do in this congregation, it's something that I'm very mindful of. Listen, this last Christmas Eve, Wednesday night, wasn't that a beautiful service at the Granada? Didn't we have a great time together? Wasn't it really great that Pastor Nate preached such a good message? And that God really moved when he preached it? Did you just hear that? I hadn't heard that until just now. We handed out 140 Bibles. Now, I don't know if there were 140 people who received Christ. I don't know, even if it was half that number. Wow, that was a wonderful work of the Spirit. God really used Pastor Nate. Now, I don't know if any of you are thinking, well, why isn't Pastor David up there preaching? He's done it the previous four years. Why isn't he preaching this? I'll tell you why I didn't. It was because I wanted Nate to have that experience. I want to teach and train him. I, I want to do that not only with him, but with the other people of our staff, with other people that God gives me opportunity with. I think it's important to train them and to raise them up and, and to train them into the things of the kingdom and to basically do something that I heard originally from my predecessor here at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, that the job of the senior pastor is to train people to do everything that he does. Well, that's one of the things I do. So I thought, why not give it to Nate this year and let him experience it? And praise God, God really blessed it. But really, that's kind of the whole reason. That's kind of the whole motivation to do that. And Jesus was acting upon that exact same principle here with Philip. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. By the way, aren't you happy that that principle is true in your life, that Jesus always knows what he's going to do? He doesn't tell you, but he always knows what he's going to do. Right now, as you stand on the threshold of a new year, 2015 is just off on the horizon. Friends, you know, Jesus knows what he's going to do in your life. You may not know what he's going to do, but that's okay. He knows what he's going to do. He's not mystified by it. So we have that. Now going on to verse 7, where we read, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. Here's the question, Philip. Philip, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? Philip goes through all the calculations. He's looking at it with a very logical, practical mind. He has the facts. He has the figures. Maybe a little bit of an accountant or an engineer in his mind. And he's calculating all out. And he goes, you know what? 200 denarii, which would be something like seven or eight months of wages for a working man. 
seven or eight months of wages for a working man, that would not be enough to give them all just a little. Now, friends, I think that's a pretty good analysis. He's looking over the crowd. He's trying to size out the crowd. Oh, I see this many. I just made that to be about 100. There's another 100 over there. Here's 1,000. I'm going to multiply, kind of do a crowd density thing. Let me analyze this. And how much would they need? How much would everybody need to have a little bit? Well, maybe a little two pieces of bread. Okay, that's a little bit. I calculate all this out. He's doing, don't you think it's pretty impressive calculations to do on the spur of the moment right there? Here's the point. Is that as it happened, all those calculations were absolutely useless in getting the job done and giving everybody fed. It was a great analysis, but a useless one. It was nothing towards getting the problem solved. And they had at least two problems. First of all, they didn't have enough money to go out and buy food for everybody. They just didn't have the money. Secondly, even if they had the money, where would there be the supply big enough to go out and feed that many people on the spur of the moment? I don't think even though they were near the city of Bethsaida, they had enough food on hand in whatever bakeries or markets that they were, whatever we would call markets, available. So this is a huge problem. I don't know. Did Philip really understand the situation? Yes and no. He understood something about the problem, but he didn't understand anything about the solution. Maybe with greater faith, this is what Philip says, with greater knowledge and faith, he could have said something like this, Master, I don't know where the food is to feed this crowd, but I do know this, you are greater than Moses, whom God used to feed a multitude every day in the wilderness, and God can certainly do a lesser work through a greater servant like you. You are greater than Elijah, whom God used to serve or to feed many of the sons of the prophets through little, perfect, through little food. And what's more, the scriptures say that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that, word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And you are great enough to fill this multitude from the words of your mouth. But Philip didn't say that. And I don't want to be too hard on Philip. Jesus is teaching him. But Philip thought in terms of money and how much money it would take to carry out the work in a small way. Notice this phrase from verse 7. To feed every one of them that everyone may have a little. I imagine that when Jesus heard that, a little bit of hair went up on the back of the neck of Jesus. Feed everyone a little? Philip, do you really think that that's how I roll? Do you really think that that's how I do things? That I would invite everybody to a lunch and give them just a little bit. Philip, you don't understand much about how I work. I'm going to draw from resources that you know nothing about. And I'm going to make sure that not everybody has just a little, but that everybody has plenty, as much as they want. Now, Andrew, another one of the disciples, is going to be very helpful here. Verse 8, look at this. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Okay, first of all, notice the person. This is Andrew. You know one of the things we love about Andrew in the Gospel of John? Is every time we see Andrew, he's introducing somebody to Jesus. The first time we see Andrew, he's introducing his brother Peter to Jesus. The second time we see Andrew, he's introducing a little boy with five loaves and two fish to Jesus. The next time we're going to see Andrew, we're going to see him introducing some Gentiles to Jesus. He's always introducing people to Jesus. It's a wonderful office that Andrew had. And who does he introduce? Notice it says right there in verse 8, there is a lad here. Without getting too technical... 
The ancient word for lad there uses what we call a double diminutive. To call somebody a boy is a diminutive. You're not a man, you're a boy. Well, it's like saying a little boy. So this was a young boy, I don't know, seven, eight years old. He wasn't a teenager. And what did he have? Look at it there in verse nine. Five barley loaves and two small fish. Now, I want you to please notice this. First of all, five barley loaves. When you think of a loaf, don't think of a great big loaf of French bread. That's not what we're talking about. For them, a loaf would be almost what you and I would call a pita bread, except maybe even a little bit smaller. It would be a flat piece of bread about the size of a pita bread. Okay, that's what we're talking about, loaf. Five little pieces of bread about the size of pita. Then you would have two fish. Now, what's interesting is the other three gospels all say fish. John uses a little special word here that doesn't contradict the idea of fish, but makes it a little more specific. Small fish like sardines that you would put upon bread. The literal word that John used in his gospel would be something that you eat with bread. Now, in our home around Christmas time, man, you know, my wife is Swedish. And so we do the whole Swedish Christmas table. And man, there is so much food there. And one of the things we have, it's part of every Christmas table, is you have little pickled herring fillets. Anybody got an amen to a pickled herring fillet? God bless you. It's an acquired taste, but man, I love it. You get that herring and you put it on a little piece of hard bread or a cracker or something like that. Man, that's good fish with some bread. But that's the kind of thing you're talking about. Little fillets, little sardines, something like this. You're not talking about two great big king salmon that came out and we're going to feed this multitude. No, no, no. You're talking about little tiny fish that you would put and make a little fish sandwich out of it. That's what he's describing. Sandwich size sardines. Now look at Andrew's reaction. And Andrew's reaction was very logical. It's right there in verse 9. He says this. What are they among so many? You know what they are among so many? Nothing. Zero. Worthless. Five little loaves and two little fish for 5,000 people. Friends, even if you could divide it up, it would be like, you know, the smallest, most microscopic little piece of bread and fish that one could imagine. It's not, no way. It's, can we just agree? This is impossible. It is impossible to feed such a multitude out of such a supply. Now, I know many of you, you're brilliant hostesses and hosts, and you know how to engineer a meal and make a little go a long way. You're good at that, and you love the challenge. You can do it, but you know what? You can't do this. You can't take five little loaves and two little fish and feed 5,000 people with it. Andrew analyzed the situation precisely, but look at what happens now at verse 10. Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so... The men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus, no panic or a hurry. Can you imagine what it would be like if you had a catering job for 5,000 people and you only had two little fish and five small loaves? That'd be panic time, right? That's stressful. Many of you know this stress of having people over the holidays. You just got through with it. And, And Jesus said, no, 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 no panic, no stress. I want you to make them sit down and... The sense, not only from this gospel, but from the other gospels, is that he had them sit down in an orderly fashion. You make them sit down upon the grass. And it says there in verse 10, the men sat down in number about 5,000. I find this very interesting. Jesus basically says this to the multitude. 
I will feed you, but you have to submit to my order. Sit down in the groups I tell you to. Wasn't that interesting? I always imagine this because my imagination is always busy when I'm reading the Bible. I imagine somebody said, don't tell me to sit down. What what do you tell me to go sit down over there with that group of people? Listen, I don't want anybody to tell me to sit down. I don't want anybody to sit down with that group of people. I'm going to do whatever I want. Fine. You want to do what you want? Great. You're not going to get fed today. If you want to receive from Jesus, you need to come under his order. And friends, this is just a very true principle in the kingdom of God, is it not? Does not God have his order for your life and my life? Doesn't Jesus say, I want to fill you. I want to feed you. I want to bless you. Here's my order for your life. Come under that order and you will be filled. Come under that order and you will be blessed. Just do what I tell you to do. And it's not something bad. I'm just telling you, once you sit down on the green grass, once you order up in groups as I tell you to, and there will be such blessing, such abundance for you. But you got to come under my order or you're not going to receive my blessing. That's what they did. And then verse 11 And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. Can you picture this scene in your mind? Jesus does what? Notice it. It says he took the loaves, and when he had given thanks. I don't know, for some reason that really stands out to me. Here I go, okay, Lord, I've got five little pieces of bread and two little fish, and I'm going to thank you for this food to feed more than 5,000 people. Doesn't it seem absurd? All he had was a little in the face of a great need, but he was thankful for what he had. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for not only what this five loaves and fishes are right in front of me. I only thank you for what it is. I also thank you for what it will become, for what you will make of it. And by the way, can I tell you that's exactly how Jesus looks at you? Jesus is thankful for you. You ever thought about that? Now, I don't know. There's some preachers who really want you to make you think that Jesus is annoyed with you, that he's angry with you. I'll tell you what. Jesus is thankful for you, and he's thankful for you not only for what you are right now, but even more so, he's thankful for what you're going to be made into by his miraculous hands. So he gave thanks for this, and then what does he do next? It says, verse 11, that he took the loaves. By the way, notice, he took the loaves from the boy. Now, I'm not saying that it was done violently. It's not like the disciples muscled the little boy and said, hand over the loaves and the fishes. I believe this was entirely voluntary on the part of the boy. And what a beautiful act of giving it was on the part of the boy. But here's the point. Those loaves became Jesus's loaves. If I could say this, while the loaves belonged to the boy, they mattered nothing. It was just one person's food. But when Jesus received them, when Jesus took them, then it was an absolute transformation. And what was the boys became Jesus's, and then it became something powerful. Little was very much in his hands. And then what did he do? Well, simply it says that he took the loaves and he distributed them among his disciples. Friends, the sense of it is this, is that the miracle was not done in the hands of the disciples, but the miracle was done in the hands of Jesus as he gave them to his disciples. So he took them and he broke off, he he tore one of those pieces of bread in half. And then he gave it to the disciples. 
and he tore it in half again, and he gave it to the disciples, and he tore it in half again, and he, and he just kept going and going and going. The miracle was done in the hands of Jesus. You know, one of the things I think is amazing about this is that this miracle was seemingly done with so little fanfare. It wasn't like, hey, everybody, watch the magic hands of Jesus. Food here, food there. No, no fanfare, no commotion. He just did it. Matter of fact, don't you think that most of the people who ate the food didn't even know that it came forth from a miracle? They're just like, I think it's amazing. This food just keeps coming forth from Jesus. Isn't this wonderful? I don't know where he gets it, but who cares? It's good. It's fresh bread. It's tasty fish. We're receiving it. Everybody ate and was filled, but they had no idea that a miracle was happening right before them. And this miracle happened as Jesus distributed to the disciples. Now notice this as well. The disciples did not do the miracle, but without them, it would have never gotten to the people. There was nothing miraculous in the work of the disciples. All they did was take the bread from Jesus, take it out to the people, and distribute it to them in the orderly groups that they had arranged. Yet nevertheless, without the work of the disciples, the miracle of Jesus would not have meant much. Now, friends, it's very easy for us to imagine that it was possible for Jesus to arrange this a completely different way. Could not have Jesus just created bread in everybody's pocket or purse? Could not have Jesus just instantly filled them miraculously in their stomachs without them even having to eat. Jesus could have done all those things, but he says, no, I need to involve my disciples in the work to teach and to train them because that is important to me as well. He he did this work to demonstrate something. He said, I will not make bread out of stones in the wilderness to miraculously feed myself but I will make bread here to feed the multitude and to train my disciples. And that's exactly what he did. And look at how much they ate. Verse 11, as much as they wanted. Friends, can I just tell you something? In that day and age, that was unusual. Most people in that day and age knew what hunger was like and they couldn't eat as much as they wanted regularly at meals. You and I, we just, well, we eat until we don't want to eat anymore. We, you know, we're challenged by how do I eat less? In those days, it was challenge of how do I eat enough? And to have a meal where 5,000 people could eat as much as they wanted, this was the most extravagant party and catering function ever in the ancient world. And they all ate as much as they wanted. They were just filled. They were glutted. Now, by the way, can I say this? Where it says that they all ate as much as they wanted, this included the little boy as well. Now, the little boy had a good lunch, don't you think? Five loaves, two fish. I think that's plenty for him. He would have been very happy with that little lunch. But friends, can I just tell you something? Is that he ended up eating, I'm sure, more than five loaves and two fish. Give me some extra fish, he said. I'll take a few more of those, uh, those, if this is the never-ending bread line, give me as much as I want. He got as much as he wanted. Immediately, even the boy received more than he gave. And he gave it generously in this beautiful act of sacrifice. Now, verse 12. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Now, there's something I see in verse 13 that I forgot to point out before. 
These were barley loaves. Barley was regarded as low food in those days. Now you and I, you know, we're working very hard and spending a lot of money to eat like poor people did back then. (laughs) Barley was considered to be an inferior kind of grain. That's what the poor people ate. What I want you to understand is this little boy came from a family that was probably poor because they had barley loaves. And that's what Jesus multiplied. In other words, he received the gift from the poor little boy. And when he fed his people, he fed them good, but he fed them simple. This wasn't donuts handed out to everybody. This wasn't, you know, uh, beautiful artisan breads. It was simple but good. And that's what Jesus fed everybody with. And then notice verse 12. It says that they were filled by it. Jesus was generous. He gave everyone as much as they wanted. While Philip was thinking in terms of feeding everybody just a little, the sight of Jesus went so far beyond that. and, And nobody could have anticipated that Jesus would have done such a miraculous, amazing work. But listen, What Jesus demonstrated in this was the giving character of God. Jesus loved to give, and that's what he demonstrated. He gave an all-you-can-eat lunch to well more than 5,000 people. Don't you think that's pretty amazing? A pretty good demonstration of God's giving heart. And that's the same character that God wants to build within us. Notice this, Proverbs 11.24 says this. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The bread was multiplied as it was scattered. I'll distribute it out. I'll put it out. I'll publish it abroad. And that will scatter the bread and it will be multiplied in that. Friends, it's the same thing that God wants us to have in our life. It's that attitude of being a giver. And look, I'm not going to tell you exactly what being a giver means for your life. I think that there's some general principles that God speaks to us about proportion, about heart, about generosity. But friends, so often the nuts and bolts of it, it comes down to you listening to the Holy Spirit with what he wants you to do in your life right now. But I will notice one thing here. In verse 12, Jesus also told them to gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Did you notice that? Jesus was generous, but never wasteful. Jesus wanted to make good use of everything. And so he said, all those broken up pieces that I broke off, by the way, it seems to imply there that it's talking about the broken up pieces, not the little crumbs that people left behind. People were able to take their own little doggy bag from what they didn't eat. But the broken pieces that Jesus didn't use or that weren't used by the multitude, Jesus said, gather all those up. And they gathered them up into 12 large baskets. There was a lot left over. There was an extravagance to the supply of Jesus. But he said, don't you waste a bit of it. That really speaks to the principle of good stewardship. Friends, God wants us, not only as individuals, but as a congregation to be good stewards of what we have. And I can tell you that we try to take that very seriously as a congregation and as a church leadership. That we constantly want to be able to look at where we're at as a congregation with what we have, with how we spend it, with how we're accountable before you. And do what's right before the Lord and good stewardship before God. If God gives us, we don't want to waste a bit of it. And that's the principle that Jesus was getting at there. Friends, I just want you to know 
that we believe that it is important for us to be utterly transparent in what we do financially before you. We started this a couple years ago where once a quarter, we give a brief financial report to you here on Sunday. You aware of that? Somebody will get up, somebody on our financial committee, one of our elders, maybe one of the pastors will get up and we'll put a few things up on the PowerPoint. Friends, when we first started doing that, I was a little nervous. I was like, mm are you sure we want to talk about this stuff regularly on Sunday mornings? But listen, almost immediately I realized this is tremendously good. We want everybody to know exactly where we're at and to be transparent. And if you want more details on what we do with the money that God so graciously provides through you and through this congregation, you just make an appointment with our church leadership and we sit down and go through as much of the books as you want to look at. We're happy to do it. Because it's very important to us to be good stewards of what God gives us. With what we do with the money, with what we do with the staff, with what we do everything down the line, it's very important to us. Because I believe that one of the first principles of doing things in God's kingdom is this. Is that if you want God to give you more of a particular thing, do right with whatever you have of that thing now. If you want God to give you more strength in your body then right now, once you take care of the strength that you have, and then look for God to do more. If you want God to give you more biblical knowledge, do something with the biblical knowledge you have right now, and God will give you more. If you want God to provide for you more financially, then make sure you're honoring God and being good steward with the money you have right now, and then God will bless you with more. It's a principle that works throughout his kingdom. And Jesus was here observing it. Now, friends, as so often is the case in the Gospel of John, this occasion of feeding the 5,000 is going to lead into a great speech that Jesus gives to the people about him being the bread of life. But we're going to have to keep that for another Sunday. Let me just conclude with this. What happened at the end of this whole thing with the loaves of the fishes? Well, just think about what happened that was good for God's kingdom. First of all, a lot of misery was relieved. There were hungry people who were filled. Isn't that a good thing? And they all had this great little meal together right there. A lot of misery was relieved. And that's always a good thing for God's kingdom. When we can go out and simply relieve some misery in Jesus' name. That was one good thing. The second thing was that disciples were taught and trained. Can you believe what a great training thing this was for the disciples? Do you believe how they got the credit of being able to share with the work? Well, you know, uh, there's Peter out handing out bread to people. And the people go, where did all this bread come from? And Peter goes, well, uh, you know... Me and Jesus, we just kind of did this thing. They were able to share right in the work and be a part of that blessing. That's number two. Number three, the leftovers were gathered to be used later. Friends, this is important. It shows a principle and it shows that God was preparing something for the future right there. Fourthly, the work was written about and told to other people. That's why it's recorded in all four gospels and why we're giving attention to it today. But then finally... In all of this, Jesus was glorified as the bread from heaven. And friends, I'm not a prophet, but I can make a prediction. That for all except a few of you who may be on some extreme diet, you're going to eat before the day is done. Fine. I know I plan to. Just as your body needs food Your soul needs Jesus. He is the bread from heaven. And so we don't want to leave this just thinking about bread that they ate. 
We want to think about the bread that we need for our soul. My prayer is that this coming year will be a year where you and I and all of us as a congregation, where we feast upon Jesus and trust him more than ever to do some wonderfully miraculous things in our midst. Father, that's our prayer. We pray that you would do this among us, that you would work, that you would move, that you'd pour out your spirit, that we would see you do great things as we follow the leading of your spirit. And Father, I pray as well, just for us as a congregation, that you would keep us in a place of good stewardship. Lord, we want to just observe the principles from your word and do the very best we can, Lord, to administer and to distribute that which you give us. But Lord, we pray that just as it's a principle here that little can be much in your hands, we pray that you would do that, Lord, with the abundance that you give to our lives individually and to this congregation. Lord, we give it to you. We put it in your hands and we pray for your blessing upon it. Leverage what we have, Lord, as we give it to you and see you do great things in it and through it. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for your goodness, your kindness towards us. We feel that we have receive something satisfying in our soul from Jesus. Lord, fill us just as you would fill a hungry soul with bread. We thank you for it, Lord, and we praise you together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.